you have a Bible today, I want you to turn to probably one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 13. I had somebody say to me, you're not going to preach on the marriage chapter, are you? Well, this is not really about marriage. It's in the middle of this letter that Paul is writing to this uh, very uh, problematic church. They were a divided church. They were a struggling church. And in the middle of all of that, Paul writes about love. And uh, we're talking today about the greatest gift. If, if there is real hope, it has to be that there is a God who loves us enough to give us gifts that, that we could not possibly afford ourselves. Have you ever received a meaningful gift? Uh, I was doing a little research. Uh, I was trying to find the greatest gift that was ever given. I, and I know biblically what that is, but I just thought in our history as a nation, what would be one of the most meaningful gifts? I, I love the one. There was a uh, Christmas gift General Sherman wrote to Abraham Lincoln on December 22nd. And he wrote this card to him and he said, I searched and searched for the best gift to give my commander-in-chief, the, the, uh, the president of the United States, and decided that the only thing I could do is I'm, I am saying as of December 22nd of this year, we are giving you the city of Savannah along with 150 heavy guns, read cannons there, all of the ammo and 25,000 bales of cotton. Uh, the city of Savannah has fallen and it is now ours. And so that was a, a pretty meaningful gift if you're in the middle of a civil war. There's a magazine called uh, Real Simple. There's a, a woman by the name of Karen Oatsby, and she wrote into the magazine, they were asking for the most meaningful gift that you've ever given or received, and she said several years ago, uh, almost 20 years ago at the time that she was writing this, she gave a gift to her mother. Her mother had macular degeneration. She was beginning to get worse and worse, and she could no longer see. And what her mother loved to do when all else failed, when she was really frustrated with her life, she would go into the kitchen and bake. But she had problems because she couldn't tell the salt and the sugar, uh, uh, salt uh, apart from the sugar. And, and when she re read the recipe, she would get the wrong measurements because they were the recipes she'd had for many years and they were stained and all. And I thought, well, that's neat. Probably what Karen did is she went and rewrote those in big, huge types so her mother could see it. No, she went to a recording studio and recorded her mother's 30 favorite recipes had it placed on a CD with all of the pro proper spacing. She said, I would record it and then wait for her to give her enough time to do the action that I had just said. And she timed it out with herself. She timed it in a kitchen so she knew what it was. Her mom could put the CD in, dial up the recipe that she wanted, and she could hear on the CD what she was supposed to do. And she said her mother used that for 10 years. When she went to go, and she had bought her mother a CD player, when she went to go get the CD player, it was full of flour and salt and pepper and all of the things that she'd used, the cinnamon and spices in her baking. And, and she said, when I opened it up, I don't know how the CD still played because there were fingerprints all over it. And she said, then all of a sudden, there were my tears because her mother had used it 10 years and then passed away. And she said it was the best money I ever spent to go to a recording studio and do this extravagant gift. Several years ago, about five, six years ago, on a Sunday night at Christmas time. We were struggling as a church. Things were kind of tough. And I was standing up at the end of the Christmas uh, musical that we had done. And down the center aisle came Fred McCullough riding a bicycle. Had a bell on it. And it was for me. And you'd say, a 50-something-year-old getting a bicycle? Brought me to tears. I, one, one of the few times I'm truly speechless. It was a very meaningful gift to me. I think they actually got tired of me riding behind them with my bike and went clonk, 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 clonk the whole time. 
The greatest gift of all, of course, is Jesus Christ. It's God's gift of love to us and how God demonstrated his love in such a, a remarkable way. And we tend to think of just the cross and we think of God's love just being centered there, but the truth is, from page one, in the beginning God created, to the very end of Revelation, the story at the end of time, it's all about God's love. It's all what God has done for us. In Jeremiah 31.3, one of many passages in the Old Testament, says, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I've loved you with an eternal and everlasting love. I've drawn you with loving kindness. Here's where we're going with this today. God's love should change everything about how we live. Now, here's the danger. I mean, we had some announcements. We had some other things. Uh, you know, I, I've got a lot of material, and love is a subject that you've heard all about. And there, some of you right now will put it on cruise. You'll snap it into automatic. You'll nod off, and uh, you'll think maybe this isn't important. I think there's no more important message in all of God's Word than His love. And even though I've studied it now for almost 40 years as a pastor, I'm telling you today, if we look at 1 Corinthians 13, we can see some fresh life, some new things that maybe you've never seen before. So come along with me on a short journey to see what love is. Here's the first of three points. Love is, is, is absolutely essential. Love is absolutely essential. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues or with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It's, it's the sound I grew up with because we had the old metal garbage cans that we would take around to the front and the garbage guy would come by and they were the big, huge aluminum things and the, t the top would come off and it would clatter down to the ground. You always knew when the garbage guy was coming because all, they just threw the lids to the side and they were all dented up and, and it was the resounding gong. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have a faith that can move mountains, we were just singing about you can move the mountain to God. Remember that song? Savior, you can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. If I have a faith that can move mountains and, but have not love, I am nothing. Not only do I not produce anything worthy of anything, but I myself am nothing. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, <coughs> but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is writing to the church, and there's, there's something that he's trying to tell us, and he's trying to tell us this in such a way that it makes a powerful point. And look at what he says. Number one, love is essential for service. Paul begins with a spiritual gift that is most important to them, that, that is nearest and dearest to their heart, the gift of tongues. And he starts out, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and at this point you can just see the Corinthian church, they're all sitting there going, yes, he finally got it. He's going to talk about our spiritual gift. And then he says, if I do that and don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. And love is essential for any service that we do. The, the gifts if you remember from the, from the last chapter when we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, the gifts were there for the benefit of the body. The gifts were there to build up Christ's church. And so what he's saying, if you're speaking in tongues, it should be something that builds up the body. It should be a service to others. He uses hyperbole. It's extravagant exaggeration in, e in each of the three examples in the first three verses. And, I, and here's the George Knight unauthorized, probably badly translated version. Even if we could perfect speech to speak a heavenly dialect without love, we sound just like noisy 
brass. And that's what he's saying. Even if we could have a heavenly language, it's the immensity of the activity as compared with the emptiness of the result. I mean, let's face it. If we, if we as a church one day said, you know what, Lord, we want you to move Mount Lassen over about 10 miles. Could you make it closer because it's too long a trip? And if, we, if God answered our prayer and Lassen moved 10 miles closer to us, first of all, that probably means it erupted, which I'm a little worried about. But secondly, that would be just such an amazing thing that we would all stand around in awe. And the Lord says, even if you see that much power displayed by me, and there's no love associated with it, it's meaningless. We have a preconceived idea. We have a nebulous idea of love. It does not reflect reality. And I, and I can prove this. You remember back, how many of you have children now or you've ever had a child? If you've ever had a child, you still have it. You do understand that. Some of you were, well, wait a second, let me think about that. Now, you, you've had a child. Remember the time before children? Do you remember that idea of what you thought was going to be this baby? This sweet little cuddly thing that was going to come into your home that you were going to have on an exact schedule. You were going to dress them in a certain way. They were always going to conform to your standards. They were going to do exactly what you thought they were going to do. They were going to be this beautiful thing. They were always going to smell sweet and innocent like that newborn baby yeah, you're all going, we don't remember any of that. Why? Because you know the reality of having a baby. When our, our oldest son, Chris, was not even a year old, we needed to go to the mall, and there was this big, huge escalator in the mall. And I said to Kathy, you know, it's, it's kind of nervous getting on the escalator the first time with the baby. You know, what if you drop the kid? So I put him up on my shoulder and let him rest on my shoulder. And it was so sweet, he put his mouth just inside my shirt and was just kind of kissing on my neck. And I thought, this is so sweet. I love this. And as we're going up the escalator, he went, <laughs> right down my back. So if you were ever in Kansas City and you saw me in the men's room with my shirt, washing it out in the sink, that was me. That's, that's the reality of having a child. And God says, sometimes my love is messy. Sometimes my love is not what you expect it to be. And on the day that he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed, he went to his disciples. And none of them there would take the time to wash each other's feet. So Jesus took off his outer cloak stripped down to his BVDs, put a towel around his waist, and the Savior, the creator of the universe, washed the disciples' feet. As they're sitting at the table and reclining with their feet out and they begin to realize what's happening, what do you think Judas thought since he's already betrayed the Lord? And Peter, who thought he was the strongest, will later that very night deny Jesus three times. And as even when he got to Peter, Peter says, no, no, Lord, you, you shouldn't be washing my feet. The truth is, if you look at the placement, it looks like Peter was probably the one who was supposed to wash the feet that night. The Lord says, I need you to wash, I, I need to wash your feet. What's amazing about this is the, 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 passion, the, the, the portion of Scripture that talks about this is John 13, 1. Look at what it says. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world. That means to go to, to Calvary. That means to die on the cross for us and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who, who were in the world, that's the disciples, that's all the believers. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. How? By going to Calvary? Yes, ultimately. But in the interim, how he showed his love was washing their feet. You see, love is essential for service because it causes us to do some things that we would never do otherwise. 
Number two, love is essential for sacrifice. It's essential for sacrifice. If you want to lead, you have to serve. If you want to be a leader, you have to serve. If you want to love, you have to serve. But if you want to lead, you have to sacrifice. And if you want to love, you have to sacrifice. And Jesus taught us this as well. In Luke chapter 18, the rich young ruler comes and he, and he comes to the Lord and, and he's kind of full of himself and he approaches the Lord and he is a, a godly man, I think, in many ways. And he begins to ask Jesus what else he should do. And Jesus says, well, how about these? And he lists off a couple of the commandments. He says, oh, oh Lord, I've, I've kept all of these commandments since I was a youth. I'm, I'm blameless, which I would take exception to anyway. I mean, legalistic, maybe he's offered the sacrifice, but there's no way that he kept all of the commandments. No one's ever been able to keep even the rudimentary, rudimentary Ten Commandments. Have you ever coveted anything? Have you ever fudged the truth just a little bit? Have, has there any been? Of course we have. Have we ever not loved the Lord the way we should? Of course we've all failed the Ten Commandments. But I'm not even going to take exception for that because the Lord looked at his heart and realized what was going on, and he said to this rich young ruler, do what? Repent? Forgive? What did he say? He said, sell everything and give it to the poor. And the young man walked away because he was wealthy. You see, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by giving. We're not saved by doing the commandments. We're not saved by all of that. And Jesus knew that. He was not trying to teach us that the way we become Christians is that we give all of our stuff away. The way we become Christians is we realize we need God's love in our heart. Because if he really... Again, another time they came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbors yourself. And Jesus proved that day that that young man loved his money more than he loved his neighbor. And the last verse of those three, it goes away from just spiritual gifts to sacrifice. Look at it again. If I give all I possess to the poor... And surrender my body to the flames. I've been reading through the, the Bible again. I, I just love doing this. I'm, I've gotten a little bit ahead. In fact, I'm going to be done reading through the Bible probably in the next 10 days. And so that'll give me two months to read through it, maybe twice this year. I don't know. But it's, it's exciting for me. And I was reading through Daniel again. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they, they approach Nebuchadnezzar. Or, or they, Nebuchadnezzar comes and gets them because they won't bow before a 90-foot idol of him. And he, they're warned, if you don't, when the music plays and all these other people bow, you have to bow. And he, they said, oh, king, live forever, but we can't do this. We just can't do this. Why? Because they love God more than they love security. They love God more than they were worried about themselves. And Paul is graphic. He says, I produce nothing. I am nothing. I gain nothing. And, and when love results in sacrifice, it changes our core values, and without it changing our core values, we have nothing to give. We have nothing to do. And when that becomes true, sacrifice is, is not something that is forced on you. When we were visiting our kids, our grandkids, uh, we went and saw Chris and Sherry. They live in the Orlando area, our oldest son and, and his wife, and they have two children, Josiah, who's now nine years old, and Gabby, who is two and Josiah was introduced this last summer to Star Wars. He had never seen Star Wars before, but he was introduced to it by his papa, me, because we went to the store and I said, you need this. You've never had a Millennium Falcon. I mean, this is the Star Wars spaceship. What do you, and he didn't know who Luke Skywalker was, and, and he didn't, he'd never heard of Jabba the Hutt. How can you live and never hear of Jabba the Hutt? 
He didn't know who C-3PO was. And so we got him the Millennium Falcon because that's what grandparents do. We spoil our grandchildren, and we bought him that, and we bought him a couple of action figures. They're not dolls. They're action figures. And when we got home, he said, Papa, now you have to teach me about Star Wars. And so I began to teach him about the little one, the R2-D2, just squeaked and squawked. And C-3PO spoke with a British accent because that's just the way it was in the movie. I have no idea why. And I could do a couple of squeaks and squawks. He quickly got on the squeaks and squawks and whistles and stuff, but he couldn't do the British accent. Well, I can't either, but he's never heard the movie, so he thought it was. And I would say, Master Luke, and I would, and I would get down on the floor, and I would play, and we would fly the ship around, and, and then we, he liked it so much. Soon we had Chewbacca, and then we had some of the others, and Luke Skywalker. And he has pretty much the whole set by the time we left. It was almost his birthday. Come on. And as we got to, to leave, he says, you know, Papa, you could get on Skype with me and we could still do this. You could get down on the floor and put the c- computer and you could be C-3PO. And then he said this, in fact, Papa, if you want to do it, I'll give you my C-3PO. You can take it home with you. This little boy that had just suddenly had a whole world of fantasy opened up to him that he loved was willing to give his Papa one of his action figures because he loved his papa more than he loved C-3PO. My question is, do you love Jesus more than whatever it is that's in your hand? Do you love others the way he loves you? John 3.16 is so basic. It says, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And after he washed the feet of the disciples, he went to the cross. After they had beaten him so you couldn't recognize him, and blood was pouring out of his head from the crown and, his, and the, the wounds in his hands and his feet, and his back was bloodied, and he was on the cross. And he could have called ten legions of angels, not just 10,000. He could have called hundreds of thousands of angels to take him down and destroy the world. But he died for you and me. If you ever ask me how much Jesus loved me, I tell you, he stretched out his arms this wide and said, this much is how much I love you. Love is absolutely essential for life, for service, for sacrifice. Here's the second part. Love has indispensable qualities. In the next verses, 4 through 7, look at what it says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not selfish, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Man, these are, these are extreme words. What he has said just there is, is not what we conceive of love. And I get two basic things from this. Number one, love is active. Love is active. What is interesting in the Greek is Paul uses 15, 15 verbs to describe love and not a single adjective. Never does he use an adverb or an adjective in describing it. It comes across in English as if that's what he's done. But every one of these in Greek is a verb. Love is action. It's not just words. Love is defined by what it does and what it does not do. And we see this all the way 
back into the Old Testament. We see this with David and Jonathan. We see it with after, after David is gone, Solomon is made king, and, and the Lord comes to him and says, what would you like? And he says, I want wisdom. And, and to prove it, there's a story. Two women approach Solomon to prove the wisdom that God has given him. And the two women have been sleeping in the same tent. They both have brand new babies. And when they awake the next morning, one of the babies is dead. And one of the women claims that the other woman, when they saw that she saw that her baby was dead, switched the babies at, at night. She said, when I woke, it, the baby was dead. Yes, it was in my hands, but it was not my baby. This woman switched the baby. And Solomon is standing there, and he's trying to judge between these two women. And, and the two women, he, he looks at them, and he realizes he's not going to be able to tell because they're both passionate about their story. So he says to the guard, take a sword and cut the baby in half. Give each of them a half. If they're going to argue over the live baby, just kill the baby and give each of them a half. Now, in our society, that seems like a really stupid thing to say. Because no one would believe that that would happen. But you need to understand, in Solomon's time, in other parts, that's exactly what they did. They offered babies all the time as a sacrifice. That wasn't a big deal. Human life didn't have the significance. It didn't have the value that we've placed on human life, mostly. And so the woman really believed that the guard would do it, and it appears that the guard got the sword out and maybe was raising it above his head, and the woman, the one whose child it really was, look at what it says in 1 Kings 3.26. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion. Read love. The woman whose son was alive was filled with love for her son, said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. I would rather someone else have my son than to see my son slain. I love him too much. Don't do that. And the Lord looked at us and said, I would rather my son die that you stay alive. I would rather my son go to the cross for you. He gives us descriptions, action. It's patient. It shows restraint. It's kind. It expresses goodness. It does not envy. It's not worried about preferential treatment. It, it, it does not boast. It's not a windbag. I looked up the term windbag in the dictionary, and there were just pictures of people from Congress when I looked at it this week. Both parties Love is, proud, uh, love is not proud, puffed up. You remember the, the old Andy Griffith show, Mayberry? You know, and Andy Griffith and his, and who, was, who was the guy that was his deputy? You watch way too much old TV, folks. folks. Barney Fife, you remember Barney? They didn't put any bullets in his gun, why? Shoot himself or shoot somebody else. But, but Barney, every time, you know, he'd do his nose like this and he would get, Puffed up. Every time I think of puffed up, I think of Barney when someone would approach him and he would try to, you know, Andy Griffiths is this nice 6'2 guy and Barney's this little shrimpy guy and he tried to swell up to look like Andy. Love is not rude. It does not behave shamefully. It's not self-seeking. It's not selfish. It's not easily angered. It doesn't fly off the handle. Love does not keep score. In your marriage, is there ever a time when you say, well, she got to do this, and, and he bought that, and so I get to, you know, since he spent this much money, I get to spend this much. Since she got to do that, I get to do uh, Since the, Do you keep score? Each aspect of love is tangible. 
And for too many, love is just a word. Here's the second part. Love is dynamic. Not only is it active, but it's dynamic. There's things that are active and not necessarily dynamic. If you take the opposite of what love is supposed to be, if you take all the negatives in this, this really describes the Corinthian church. They were not patient. They were impatient. They were unkind. They were envious. They were proud. They were boastful. They, they, they did all these. They were rude. And, and Paul is trying to make the point, listen, if love is, if the love of Christ is flowing through you, it's, it's so dynamic that it changes you. My, my greatest fear is that sometime someone will look at us and say, you're, what you're personifying is more what the Corinthian church personifies than what Christ personified. I was out riding a bike a couple of weeks ago, and, and I was going down Alta Mesa and, and just riding through the neighborhoods and, and trying to dodge the people doing the garage sales. If you're doing a garage sale, please watch for me. You know, and I'm just going through the neighborhood, and you know, people are U-turning and doing all this other stuff. And, and I came down Alta Mesa almost to Hartnell, and, and I was riding by, and there were these three guys with bicycles. Now, our, they were very similar to mine. Mine's a road bike, and it has pedals that you clip your feet into so they're secured and you can't get them out. And, you know, it has the 27-inch wheels, and it's got a leather saddle and, you know, the drop handles and all. Theirs were very similar. Theirs cost about $25 a piece. Their pedals, some of them had plastic. Most of them just had the metal rod out there, and their seats uh, were not even pleather. They were just, most of them were just plastic and just kind of on there, and they were kind of sneering at me. You know, as I went by, yeah, you know, the guy with his road bike. And so they rode with me for a few, you know, few feet until I blew them off, you know, a little. The bad news is when I realized I got to the end, I had to come back by them. So when I came back by them, they were gone except one guy, and he was walking his bike. And I said, I, you know, I, I, first I rode back and rode by, and then I thought, no. And so I doubled back, and I stopped, and I said, what's going on? He says, my tire's flat. He says, it's just a bummer. And I said, where do you live? And he told me, and I said, man, that's way, that's three miles away. And he said, yeah, I'll walk it. It's no big deal. And I said, well, do you have a, you know, when's the last time you put air in it? He says, a couple of years ago. I don't know why it doesn't have air in it now. I said, well, I have a tire pump. Would you like me to pump it up? He said, you'd do that for me? I said, sure. I grabbed, hopped off my bike, grabbed the tire pump, and he says, well, you have different tires. You have little skinny deals on yours, and, and mine are bigger. I said, my, my tire pump will do all kinds of tires, and it will do yours. And I hooked it on there, and I began to pump about 150 pumps to get the back. Man, I'm sweating. You know, I finally get it all pumped up. Then I realize the front's just as low, so I do the front. And he, he thumps on me. He says, man, these is good. <coughs> he said, can I ride with you? I said, probably not, but we'll try. And he rode a bit, and then he had to turn a different direction. Before he got on the bike, he said, why would you do this for me? I said, because Jesus Christ loved me enough, and he tells me that I'm supposed to love anybody that I run into. I, I didn't plan on saying it. I wasn't trying to be super religious. It just came out. He said, you know, the only Christian I know is my dad. He swears, and he drinks beer, and he throws things at me, and he hates me. And I ride my bike all the time, so I'm not in the house. That young man, I don't know who he is. I didn't get his name. I spent probably less time than I just used to describe the story. But he needed to see the love of Jesus Christ because it's dynamic. It goes, it goes everywhere. And it should be in anything and everything. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says it this way, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died 
for all. It compels us. It's dynamic. It will not let us sit and stay the same. Here's the last part. Love is ultimately permanent. Look, look at the last verses. Love never fails. Just in case you didn't get it before, you know where it talks about it, it per, always perseveres, always, 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 always. It uses that same word. It, it's, it's eternal. It's never changing. He says love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection, when that which is mature, when that which is complete comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection is in a mirror. You need to understand, Corinth was a center of where they made most of the mirrors for all of that area. They were renowned for their mirrors. Their mirrors were the clearest mirrors. And he's saying, it's like you have a mirror where you can't see quite clearly. Now we see but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as, I'm also, as, as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Two questions. What do you do with this? If this kind of love has been portrayed for us, what do we do with it? Here's the first question. Have I experienced Christ's love? If love is ultimately permanent, have I experienced it? Love never fails. The spiritual gifts have a greater built-in obsolescence than the latest iPhone. I noticed they've already taken an iPhone 5C off the market. It was just weeks out, and they've already pulled it, and that's the end of 5C. So if you have 5C, you may have a rarity, okay? The iPhones, the, the minute you get them, they're already obsolete. And Paul is saying, listen, with the, these, these things, it's going to cease. There's a Greek word there that's very specific. I, I have an article, and I was going to read it. It's kind of long, and because of time, I'm not going to. But basically what it's talking about is this from Expositor's Bible Commentary. There are some people who say, who look at this passage and say, what this means is at the time that Paul was writing this, about 25, 30 years after Jesus' death, the, the scriptures were still being put together. Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians is one of the earlier letters. Eventually the four Gospels and the, the book of Acts, Romans, all of these other books, the 26 books would come together and there would be the end of the New Testament. It would be complete. And by the time it was all put together with the Old Testament, about 100 A.D., tongues would cease. The, the gift of languages, speaking in, in one language and someone hearing in another language, would basically cease. And historically... That is what happened. We don't read of, of any of the sign gifts, what we call sign gifts, where people had prophecies telling the future like John did. We don't read of others like Peter did. We don't read of other things after about 100 A.D. when John finished his ministry. We don't really hear of that. And from about 100 A.D. until about 1900, there was very little of the sign gifts. Now, and I know the Greek words, and I understand that the word permanent is a specific Greek word. Teleion, teleion can mean complete, can mean mature, can mean perfection. And there are some who teach that. My, my father taught that. 
And I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's very possible that most of the sign gifts stop there. Why? Because if not, it becomes the focus of the church. And if you know someone who still displays the sign gifts, that's all they can focus on. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Do you have the, Holy, the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Can you speak in tongues? Do you prophesy? Do you interpret? And you get up and you have to do one of the sign gifts. But I think ultimately, I know that they will cease when Jesus Christ comes back. Because he is teleion. He is perfection. He is everything completed. And the problem I have with saying that all of the sign gifts ceased is that there are times when missionaries have come back and told me that they spoke in a language and someone else heard in a different language. I don't believe I've ever received a sign gift. And yet I was in Moscow one time and someone was speaking in English and others were hearing in Russian because the interpreter that was supposed to be interpreting for us stopped interpreting and I whispered to the interpreter, you need to interpret what he said. He said, why? He's speaking in Russian now. And on that afternoon on Arbot Street, 2,000 people came to know Jesus Christ. 2,000 people in the face of KGB, stood up and said, we are Christians, we are believers in Jesus Christ. They took a New Testament. They were all photographed by the KGB before the fall of the USSR in 1991. But I have, have I experienced his love? It's not have I experienced some sign gift, have I experienced his love? Because when Paul is talking about the, the love that never fails, whatever happened with the sign gifts, we know the love is still there. Have you experienced that kind of love? Uh, in, in the Indeed magazine, uh, I don't know if you read the devotional. We have it out there. It's free. But at the very end of it, again, because I'm a little ahead, I've been reading the Indeed a little ahead too because just I am OCD and I do that. But it talks about God's love. Uh, in Zechariah 8.2, God's burning jealousy. Uh, this, this guy was having a debate with someone. Is the holiness of God right or is the love of God right? Well, they're both right. Is God just? Absolutely. Is he love? Absolutely. But he goes back and points out in Zechariah 8, 2, it talks about God's burning jealousy of his bride. In Ezekiel 6, 9, it talks about his grief and brokenness over his wayward bride. In Revelation 21, there's this wedding feast where the bride and the groom are finally united. And we're the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. The Sinai uh, covenant portrayed in Exodus and throughout Jewish culture and history as, as the wedding ceremony in Jeremiah 2.2. The romance and redemption in the book of Ruth, that's all about the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer. We have the, the wedding terminology in Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6, Isaiah 62.5. And it goes on, the, Ezekiel 16, the forsaken husband and, and the, the betrayed lover in Hosea. And, and it goes on and on, the song of songs is an illustration of this romantic, intimate love that God wants to have with us. It's all in the Old Testament. When somebody says to me, well, the love of God is only in the New Testament, I think, you, you need to read the Old Testament again. From the very first page to the very end, it's all about God's love. Have you experienced it? And in the New Testament, he just follows suit. In Romans 5, 5, hope does not disappoint us. Oh, what was our subject again? Oh, real hope. Hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's he, who he's given us. And I've said before that word poured out is literally lavished. And it's, it's the word that's used for water coming over a waterfall that never ceases. It's not a waterfall that's seasonal. Some of our waterfalls around here, when the, when the rain stops in, in 
uh, in the spring and by the end of the summer, if you go to look for the waterfall, it's non-existent. This is not that kind of waterfall. This is the kind of waterfall that David experienced in the desert. And, and I've been there in the middle of, of a time when the water should cease, and it's there because it's an underground spring, and it just keeps pouring. It's Bernie Falls, magnified over and over, and we're, we're drenched by his love. Here's the last one. Do I demonstrate Christ's love? It's, it's one thing to experience it, but do I demonstrate it? A lot of churches today that focus on a few of the gifts and they miss the analogy of a body that needs all of the parts of the body to live. We're we're too too busy trying to perfect the art of looking cool. I mean, we try to look like we're something that we're not. If you'd seen me yesterday when I woke up, I'll tell you what, my cold was bad and my cough was bad. And Kathy was back in the bedroom, and I was trying to, you know, you get up in the morning, you have to phlegm, and it's nasty. I won't go into all the details, but it was not pretty. And she heard this horrible sound, and she came out, and she said, is that you? I said, no, the dog. You know, got some congestion. He was trying to cough it up, you know, cough. It was a cat with a hairball. We're afraid to let people see the real us. I've been convinced a lot that maybe we ought to start our church services like they do at AA. Everybody stand up and say, my name is, and that's the way we should start our services. And I would say, my name is George, and I'm a sinner. That's who I am. God's forgiven me. He bought me back. He's cleansed me. He's used me. But when it's all said and done, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. It's not that I'm perfect. If you'd seen me last night, I hadn't shaved in a couple of days. I, was, I looked terrible. I sounded terrible. Kathy basically saw me sitting in the recliner and said, I'm going to go back and get in bed because, you know, you're just going to have to make your own way back at this point. She couldn't lift me if she had to. And I, and I felt horrible. And that's just from a cold. There are a lot of times a sin will do the same thing. A kind of, that kind of honesty and humility reminds us of God's love, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy. And it helps us to be real enough to other people that when they come in, they don't see this church as some goody-goody thing, this, this group of people that won't help. In Acts chapter 9, there's a story. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha who was always doing good and helping the poor. When she dies, they come and they, they bring all the clothes that she has made for them and all the things that she's done for them. And they, and they remark about what a remarkable woman she is. And the Lord allows her to have a little more time to do that. But I just think it's interesting. In Tabitha, in Joppa, there was this disciple. And, and even centuries later, there is, there's this marker on Joppa that Tabitha was there. Always been known for that. I'll close with this. It's a true story. When I was growing up, there was a, a family I was especially close to, and I've, I've mentioned them before. My best friend growing up was Randy Scott. He was 6'2". He weighed 135 pounds. When he got really buffed out, he was 138 pounds. He was just this tall, skinny kid. I struggled with my weight. I was 6 feet tall and 235 pounds. So, I mean, we were Mutt and Jeff in some sense. He was a little taller and a lot skinnier, and we loved to hang out. He had a 57 Chevy. I had a 63 Ford Falcon convertible. I mean, we were it. We were the thing. We just thought we really knew the whole deal. And sometime after we graduated high school, we both went to Calvary Bible College and, and actually uh, 
you know, we just had a, we had a great time. And Kathy and I, once we were married, we knew his wife and, and Randy, and we just we hung out with them. And one day Randy called me, and he said, something bad has happened to my mother. She thought that she had the flu, and she went to the hospital, and they didn't, didn't take care of it. And it turned out that the lining of her brain shrunk, and her brain expanded because of the high... Uh, temperature that she had and she's had brain damage when they finally got her situated and settled she could think clearly but she couldn't communicate she couldn't talk she couldn't walk she couldn't go to the bathroom by herself she had to have permanent care this the terrible thing is she could think and they eventually figured it out and they would put a pencil in front of an electric typewriter and she could type out And it took her forever, but when she typed, you realize she could spell, she was articulate, she she was this woman trapped inside this body. Now, Randy's dad was an executive with GM. He had a great job with General Motors there in Kansas City. They had a big plant. Uh, Harley Scott was was way up in the chain. He made a lot of money, and they were were quite well-to-do. He had a new car every two years, but he realized that his job was going to keep him from being where he needed to be with his wife, so he took early retirement, took all the money, began to, t- to care for Goldie Scott, his wife. He didn't really tell the church, but we didn't really reach out to him. And month after month and year after year, he cared for this woman. He took a job selling suits when he finally ran through the retirement money, and he worked for a, one of the big clothing stores, the men's stores in town, and he would, he would work in the evenings, and he would have other people finally come and, and take care of Goldie during the day, and one night, one Saturday night, he came home late. He'd closed the store at 9 o'clock, and he came home late. He got the key into the front door, collapsed with a heart attack, died on the front step of his home. When the people in the church began to realize what they had not done for them, they were aghast. He was $100,000 in debt. He'd run up every credit card. He'd run through all the money. He was desperate and desolate. He was worried. He'd gained weight. He was lifting his wife by, her, by himself, giving her baths and taking her to the restroom and dressing her every day. Harley Scott showed me what love was. He displayed it every day. And what breaks my heart is that we as a church did not come alongside to love Goldie as much as he did and to love Harley as much as he loved his wife. And he died an unnecessary death because the church was so focused on themselves that they forgot to love in a tangible way. And it made me sure that I didn't ever, ever want to be a part of a church that didn't understand and demonstrate love. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? So how about you? Have you ever experienced the love of Jesus Christ? Do you know him as your Savior? Have you asked him into your life, into your heart? If someone took that description, those 15 verbs of love, would it describe you or would the antithesis of that describe you? Are you more like the Corinthian church or like the Christ church? Are we so out of focus that we forget to love? Oh, Father, our only real hope is found in Jesus Christ. And this is not about us, and it's not about this church, and it's not about me. It's about you. Purify me. Cleanse me. Forgive me. 
heal me. Make us the people you've called us to be, the church you've called us to be. May we show love in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.